Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. For the season one finale, I decided that I wanted to tell one of my most requested stories. You know, there's this thought that serial killers are less likely to succeed in today's world. Due to how far we've come with criminal profiling, DNA analysis, and general public awareness. However, when you guys, the listeners, told me to cover the story of Canadian landscaper Bruce MacArthur, I didn't quite realize that this case is still unfolding as the recording of this podcast in 2021. So grab your knitting or your vice of choice and join me as we uncover the case of Bruce MacArthur. My name is Sophia Talley and this is True Crime in Knit. Bruce MacArthur was born on October 8, 1951 in Lindsay, Ontario, Canada. He grew up on a farm in Woodville, Ontario in a very small rural town. He lived with his parents, Mary and Malcolm MacArthur, and sister Sandra. Bruce's mother was a devout Irish Catholic and his father was Scottish Presbyterian. This religious divide caused a lot of heated arguments in the house, with Bruce often taking the side of his mother. The father resented this and was very strict and felt as if Bruce wasn't masculine enough for him. The family also took in dozens of foster children at a time. And it wasn't uncommon for urban families to send their child to the MacArthur farm to help them build character and get away from city life. In the community, the MacArthurs were well known and held at a high regard because of the work that they did with foster children. Despite this, Bruce did not feel comfortable with his father, who not only verbally abused him, but also may have suspected that Bruce may have been gay. And you need to remember that this is the 50s and 60s in rural Canada. To put it in perspective, Bruce went to school in one of those old-timey one-room schoolhouses. And at school, he was known as the class tattletale, which did not make him popular with the other kids. And he was really good at singing and won competitions for his singing voice. After graduating from high school, when Bruce was 23, he married his high school girlfriend, Janice Campbell, and shortly after, he graduated from a business program. This helped him become an assistant buyer for Eaton's department store in 1973. At the same time, the historic gay village in Toronto was growing only a few blocks away from where he worked, which had to be hard for Bruce because at this time, Bruce fully knew that he was gay, but he was trying to fight it. And before I go on, I just want to talk more about the gay village in Toronto. Throughout this story, I may refer to it as the village, the gay village. Some people call it Cabbage Town, but essentially a lot of people just call it the gay village. And this was just a small neighborhood in Toronto in which a lot of LGBT LGBTQIA plus members lived and there was a lot of LGBTQIA businesses and events and things like that. And at this time in the 70s, it was up and coming and bustling. But shortly after establishing himself at Eaton's, 
Bruce's father was diagnosed with a brain tumor at the age of 49 and sent to live in a nursing home. Bruce often visited his father and they actually began to bond during this time. Bruce also began to become disappointed with his mother, who was absent at this time because she began an affair with another man. And Bruce's mother died of cancer in 1978. And then only a few years later in 1981, his father succumbed to his illness. By 1981, Bruce had two children, Melanie and Todd, and he lived with his wife in Oshawa, where the family was active in their community church. Despite this, Todd was still struggling with his sexuality, and he used his church involvement as a distraction from these struggles. But you know, you can't just hide who you are, and Bruce began to slowly dip his toes into the local gay scene in the village during the 90s when he was around 40. After a year of experimenting, Bruce actually came out to his wife and they decided to stay together. Despite this, it was from here that Bruce's life began to take a downward spiral. First, he stopped working in the clothing industry. Whether he was fired or left his job, we don't know. But I'm inclined to think that he lost his job, not on his own accord, because starting in 1997, the family fell into financial difficulty. And it was generally believed that Bruce and his wife separated at this time. Bruce moved to a three-bedroom condo in Toronto where he had room for his kids to come visit him. Bruce ran his own landscaping business and even worked briefly as a mall Santa. So he completely changed career paths and his landscaping business was actually doing very well. But things came crashing down for Bruce because on Halloween afternoon in 2001, Bruce was invited to sex worker Mark Henderson's apartment to see Mark's Halloween costume. Bruce was holding an iron pipe at the time, and he never said why he was carrying this pipe. He just said that he always carried it, and it wasn't unusual for him to do so. And Bruce took this pipe and unprovokedly struck Mark in the back several times. After this attack, Mark was able to dial 911 before falling unconscious. Despite needing stitches and weeks of physical therapy, Mark survived the attack. And Bruce actually turned himself in shortly after this, claiming that he didn't know why he attacked Mark. He pleaded guilty to charges of assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. Strangely, Bruce apologized to Mark in court and claimed his life had just been a mess. Despite beating a man with a metal pipe, Bruce got a literal slap on the wrist. He was just banned from the gay village and he was even banned from hiring sex workers. And his name was added to three different lists that actually list different clients that workers should avoid. He also ordered... He was also ordered to counseling in 2003, and he was ordered not to take a drug that is nicknamed Poppers, which is an anti-seizure medication that is taken recreationally before sex. Bruce never saw jail time for this and was instead put on house arrest for one year, then a six-month curfew, and then three years of probation. So they just tried to ease him back into society, despite the fact that he likes to carry a metal bar around town. 
Sorry, this just makes me really angry and confused because I understand being aware and sensitive to mental illness, but when that person is causing potential fatal harm to another person, then they shouldn't be out here with the rest of us. This is something that I see a lot in Canadian cases. And it's almost as if America is at one extreme locking everybody up while Canada is at the other extreme giving attempted murderers and murderers a pass. So when Bruce's conviction was unfolding, he still was active in the gay scene, specifically in the BDSM community. He was on literally every gay dating site and app that was up at the time, and he was known to date slightly younger men, men around their 40s, and most of these men were of South Asian or Middle Eastern descent. Though he was not allowed to be a part of the gay community, he still lived in the area and tried to still be involved. Most members of the community was not having it at all. The assault on Mark had the whole gay community buzzing. One acquaintance of Bruce named Robert James was actually warned to stay away from him as he was known around town to have a temper. So in 2001, when Robert heeded this warning by saying no to a coffee date with Bruce, Bruce is quoted as saying, why don't you like me? And when Robert says that he heard disturbing stories about him, Bruce began to yell, I'm tired of these exploitative, exploitative, telling stories about me. Why do they hate me so much? You're just like the rest of them. You think I'm crazy, end quote. There are so many accounts like this of Bruce just losing his cool from him knocking down a row of glasses at a bar to just yelling at a restauranteur who was simply inquiring about an ex-boyfriend. And because of these outbursts, Bruce was known to be a scary guy. Despite this, in 2014, Bruce was pardoned for his attack on Mark, and this conviction was actually expunged from his record. What this means is that this conviction would be hidden in any background checks. So technically, Bruce can take a job anywhere amongst the public and no one would know that he had had this violent offense. And this is why when I researched this case, it became hard to find information because a lot of these records were actually destroyed just out of routine record keeping of the Toronto police. Also around this time, his teenage son, Todd, was facing legal trouble for making obsessive and obscene phone calls to women he didn't know. And these phone calls were of a sexual nature. So to put it shortly, he was harassing women over the phone for years. And this went on for so long that Todd had a long rap sheet of dozens of convictions for things like harassment and making indecent phone calls. And guys, these indecent phone calls got so bad that by 2014, Todd was on probation for two different charges, and he was sentenced to 14 months in jail for calling a woman at her workplace and repeatedly sexually harassing her over the phone. So, you know, he was just the scum of the earth type. And the judge actually threatened Todd that if he continued to go on with these phone calls, he will be sent to federal prison. But he continued anyway, and as of 2018, he's expected to stand trial. 
But in 2014, Todd had over two dozen convictions. His lawyer during his defense in court stated that Todd suffered from telephone scatologia, which, and this is a quote, the sufferer can't stop making obscene phone calls. And I had to look this up because I never heard of this. And I'm sure most of you haven't either. And I'm not going to lie, after doing my research, to me, it just sounds like his defense was just trying to come up with a good excuse for him committing repeated acts of sexual harassment. And surprise, surprise, it is. Please, anyone correct me if I'm wrong in the Discord or in the comments on YouTube. But from what I found, telephone scatologia is a type of just a sexual kink and not like an impulsive psychological disorder. It is literally something that you can control and that there are legal outlets for one to go and pay money and do what you need to do. What I'm trying to say, his lawyer made it sound like he had some type of disorder when really it was just a sexual uh, preference. It wasn't anything that he couldn't control. So the lawyer also said that he thinks that Todd made these phone calls because of at either 11 or 12 years old, he had his first sexual experience with a grown woman over the phone. So more yikes. And what did Bruce have to say about all this? He says, we've been through enough. We're also victims. We've been through too much. It's been hell. No more comment. End quote. And it was hard on the family as well, as this was a huge financial strain and they were already in financial trouble because they, first of all, Bruce lost his job and then now they have to pay all these legal fees. But I wouldn't go as far as calling Bruce a victim. So when Todd was released on bail in 2014, the judge actually ordered him to stay with his father in Toronto, which is literally insane because his father is a violent sex offender himself. A friend at Todd's actually visited him at Bruce's condo in Toronto around this time. And during his visit, he went into a bathroom that was connected to Bruce's bedroom. And in that bathroom, there was a collage of photographs of naked men who he thought looked, quote, and I quote, East Indian. And when he asked Todd about it, Todd actually said that his father just knew those men. So the two young men bought the photographs up at breakfast and the friends said Bruce laughed it off and Bruce said he wasn't hiding them from anyone. They were in plain sight. The keeping of the photos in plain sight in a home that he sometimes shares with his two children or they're not children, but they're adults or young adults at this time. It's just highly inappropriate and predatory behavior. That's just not okay on many levels. And before I go on, because I'm sure as listeners, you guys are already uh, seeing some parallels here between 
Bruce and Todd. And I've seen articles saying that you can't really connect Bruce and Todd's predatory ways biologically because even though there could be a neurological disorder, there just isn't enough research or evidence to make this conclusion. But honestly, the social connection is enough for me. Like, how could Bruce be a dad when his dad clearly was not fair to him? And what's worse is Bruce's dad was is repeatedly being praised in the media for being this super dad because he took in foster children. But at the same time, he would verbally abuse his son because he felt like his son was different. And he really wasn't different. Um, he was just gay. And I'm not defending Bruce here, but I'm just saying this is generations of shitty parenting here. And I cannot imagine how Bruce felt in his childhood with everyone saying how good of a dad his abusive father was. And I mean, can you imagine how that would affect Bruce as a father? Literally every interview of someone from Bruce's childhood made a point to note how normal his childhood was and how great his home life was. But nothing in his home life sounds normal. From the clash of two religions, the insecurity from his parents taking in so many foster kids at once. Remember, up to 10 kids at once used to stay there. So there is no stability or normalcy for Bruce as a child. Literally, he could wake up any day to a brand new household, no warning, and combine all of that with not being heterosexual. It's just, just sounds like a really rough home life. And further, remember, Robert, the friend of Bruce, who was told to stay away, he states that Bruce told him his son didn't accept the fact that he was gay and says repeatedly throughout this interview with Toronto's son that the father and son relationship was struggling and it was always on Bruce's mind. So while Bruce's life was seemingly spinning out of control, the Toronto gay community was trying to solve some troubling disappearances as well. And we will get more into that after today's Knitter Mission. Before I get into today's knitter mission, I just want to say that I am extremely thankful for the wonderful outpour of support that I have gotten from this podcast. I didn't expect anyone to listen to it, and I'm just really, really excited and just really humbled and honored that you guys are have been listening with me for these 10 episodes. I have always, always wanted this podcast to be uh, broken down into seasons just because the subject matter is a lot for one person to research. It's a lot of research and the subject matter itself is upsetting. And so that's why I always knew I wanted to break it up into seasons. So that way I can just get a break and I can continue making what I hope is high quality content for y'all. So yeah, so thank you very much. I will be taking, let's see, it's going to be about a four week break now from the time that this podcast has been, has been uploaded. And when I come back from those four weeks, it will be great. It's going to be wonderful. So it's, we're going to have so many new episodes. And if you're going to miss me in those four weeks, I am still going to be posting weekly on Patreon. I have tons of unused 
footage. That's great. That adds perspective to cases that we've covered throughout this season that I just couldn't fit into the podcast just because a lot of the episodes with guests specifically was just two hour long. And I just wanted to condense the story as much as possible to make it easy to follow. But I still kept all of that footage and you will be able to see a lot of it on Patreon. And there will be a link to my Patreon in the show notes. But enough about that and my Patreon and the show. Let's get on with the knitting. So this week, I have been uh, knitting a new sweater for myself. It was a sweater that I casted on for my birthday. My brother gifted me a really nice gift certificate to Michael's, my favorite store. And I love Michael's, not not because they have like the best high quality yarn selection. I just love Michael's just out of nostalgic reasons. As a kid, I used to love going there. I loved it better than going to a toy store because I loved crocheting and I just loved anything artist and crafty. I love making things with my hands. So anytime I can, I, I pop into Michael's and I see what they got and this time around I popped in and I found that that they had quite a bit of Woolies uh, yarn by Lion Brand. It is a worsted weight yarn and I got it the color Fisherman and this is what it looks like if you if you're not watching it is just a natural white color it's 80% acrylic 20% wool and the reason why I went with Woolies is because it washes and dries well and I, it's affordable and it's something that my kid can theoretically puke on and I can continue to wear it after washing it a lot. It's just easy to care. I also tend to get pretty itchy with wool. So that's why I just went for a wool blend with some acrylic. And then I used a long with a 100% acrylic ball of, of Lion Brand Mandala yarn. So for those who can't see it, I'm going to put a picture of my project in the show notes. But it's literally a circular yoke top-down cardigan. And I'm using the Lion Brand Mandala uh, yarn to create this beautiful rainbow. And for those who don't know, the Mandala yarns from Lion Brand, they actually are like a... I don't know what to call it, like a transitioning color, changing yarn. So it'll start purple and then it'll fade into blue and it'll fade into green and fade into yellow. And they have so many different types of fade and color combinations to choose from. And I always love this yarn, but it's never quite enough to make a whole sweater. You don't want a whole sweater to be like, you know, rainbow. And so I'm using this just on the yoke and it's just so fun. It's a fun way to use this type of yarn. And the reason why I went with the Mandala is because it's the same company as the lion brand so it's like very it's uh very similar despite the fact it's a different uh yarn composition but it also has the same care instructions and that's what i really cared about was the care instructions because i do have some gradient yarn in wool and you know in different types of fiber compositions that may be better for a sweater but that was the only one I can find that in my stash that had the same care instructions so that's why I was okay with the acrylic being on the yoke and it's just so fun and this project really helped me have like a fun knit on my birthday and it was just very nice and it wasn't supposed to be a work knit but guess what a pattern is coming and it's going to be amazing and it's a really nice beginner 
friendly, top-down, circular yoke uh, cardigan option for y'all. So keep an eye on that. I hope to have it out sometime in October. I need to get it tested. So, yeah. Oh, and I do have the ball band for the Mandala yarn. Let's see if I can get it on camera. I'm going to post uh, the link to the yarn um, in the show notes as well, in case you're wondering. It's literally just acrylic yarn. I think I picked it up from Walmart, actually. And it's honestly one of my favorites. I've used this yarn before, and I've washed it a thousand times for my son's baby blankets, and it looks great. Now, before I go on with the story, I just have one more announcement. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of True Crime and Knit, I now have a Google Docs form. I have one for my Patreons and I have one for everyone else. If you are a Patreon member, then you will be able to use the Patreon one. That's going to be on my page on Patreon. And what that one does is that it's just like your request is just processed faster. Like it will most likely become a show sooner. It, it just helps me organize it. Okay. I get a lot of suggestions and I just needed a better way to organize it. So now I have a Google forms for that. So if you're a Patreon member, check that out on my page. If you're not, I'm going to have a link to it in my show notes and I do read all of your requests. I usually get them in Instagram comments and it has just been really hard to organize those. I've I tried just copying and pasting everything into a Word doc, but now it's just getting out of hand. So if you ever submitted a request in the past and I've yet to cover it as of the closing of season one, go ahead and just resubmit that request in the form. So that way I can, that way, you know, I seen it and it just didn't get lost in the shuffle. So now let's get on with our story. We left off with Bruce's life just being an all-around struggle, but at the same time, the gay community was struggling as well, but trying to find the source of several disappearances. And when I say gay community, I should specify that this is this gay village that I mentioned earlier, also known as Church and Wood Leslie. So just keep that in mind. If I say Church and Wood Leslie, that's also what I mean. It's also the gay village in Toronto. In September 4, 2010, 40-year-old Skanda Navaratnam was last seen leaving Zipper's Bar in the Church and Wesley area with an unidentified man. That night, it seemed as if Skanda just disappeared without a trace. Months later, on December 10, 2010, 42-year-old Abdul Bazir Faizi also nicknamed Bazia, was reported missing, and he was also last seen at the church in Wellesley area. Another man, 58-year-old Majid Kayan, also known as Hamid, was last seen on October 14, 2012, and he was known to frequent the area of church in Wellesley. All three of these men were of South Asian descent, and Concerned about the similarities between the men, the police launched an investigation dubbed Project Houston, thinking that they may have a serial killer. 
targeting gay South Asian men in the village. But they found, and I quote, no evidence to suggest criminal activity. The families didn't agree with this finding. And here's why. Project Houston only lasted 18 months. 18 months. Much too soon for three missing persons cases that is so similar in their profile. Coincidentally, during Project Houston in 2013, an anonymous tip called police stating that Bruce MacArthur had a romantic relationship with Skanda, who was the first missing man, and Hamid, who was the third missing man. But when police questioned Bruce, he denied being in a romantic relationship, but admitted to knowing the two men. Police had no evidence linking Bruce or anyone else to Skanda and Hamid, and so they concluded Project Houston. And I couldn't find anything on this, but I wonder if the family of the missing men knew they were questioning someone. And if I knew they were questioning a man who who pled guilty to beating another man with an iron bar, I would be upset if nothing came of that as well. But the thing is, you know, these men were just missing. There were no bodies or any hard evidence to suggest that they even met with foul play in the first place. They could have just walked away from their life. In 2017, eight more men went missing from Gay Village. These men are Salim Essen, 43, Zuwan Frank Wang, 25, Jeffrey Howard, 55, Daniel Procello, 53, Andrew Kinsman, 49, Chitam Lee, 45, Graham Hill, 34, and Raymond Burnett, 48. This adds up to a grand total of 11 missing men from 2010 and 2017. And mind you, these are the only ones that have been reported missing. Though all these disappearances were beyond troubling, one in particular struck a chord with the community, and that was the disappearance of Andrew Kinsman. Andrew Kinsman was a well-known and well-loved man who lived in Gay Village. Kinsman was last seen sometime in June 2017. And Ted Healy, who is Andrew's friend, recalls, I got a text from one of his housemates on June 28th saying no one has heard from him for a couple of days. We went into the apartment on Wednesday night. The cat was out of food and water and was glad to see us. The apartment was untouched. And this just broke my heart because Andrew's cat was 18 years old and everyone who knew him knew that he loved his cat and would never leave him without food. And just side note, you can't have a cat for 18 years and just abandon him. Just no way. That's a man that loves his cat right there and rightfully so. And they... And rightfully so, they reported Andrew missing and the community was just shattered at this news. They were already aware of these disappearances, but Andrew was just an all-around well-liked guy. A neighbor of Andrew says to Toronto.com, We've got a nice little place here in Cabbage Town and every couple of days, neighbors walk past asking if there's any new news. There's a bit of hope and we're Still hoping that regardless of what the news is, that there is some kind of closure. We're very hopeful of that. Out of all the missing men, it was Andrew's disappearance that sparked media attention. And it is not that he was better than the others in any way. Part of it was that he was 
very popular, but there was something else that set Andrew's case away from the others. Andrew was reported missing within 72 hours of his disappearance, meaning that evidence was fresh and undisturbed. In November 2017, Project Prism was launched by Toronto police. Though Andrew's case was the key to the investigation, police found a crucial piece of evidence that they thought would help while investigating Andrew's disappearance. Though police don't state what that evidence was, Detective Sergeant Hank Insigna states, if he had been reported seven or eight days after he disappeared, we wouldn't be here today. Police did eventually reveal that they found the name Bruce written on Andrew's calendar for June 26th. Also on the 26th, police found surveillance footage taken from outside of Andrew's home. On the footage, you can see what looks to be Andrew approaching a 2004 Dodge Caravan. Police did a search and found that there were 6,000 similar models registered in Toronto at the time, but only five were owned by a Bruce. And out of that five, only one was the 2004 model that they saw on the tape. And that car belonged to Bruce MacArthur. The race was now on to connect Bruce MacArthur to Andrew Kinzen. They worked on locating Bruce's car, which they find out he had sold to Dom's Auto Parts and Countries, Ontario, which is over 40 miles northeast of Toronto. Police found surveillance footage of Bruce visiting the auto shop, further connecting him with the vehicle. After seizing Bruce's car, they found trace amounts of blood and other DNA evidence. And guess who this blood and DNA belonged to? Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen, who was another missing man from the village. From here, police knew that they had their man. There was just too much coincidence here. And from now, you're going to see why serial killers aren't as common as they used to be. Police gained a warrant to track Bruce's phone, and they received a log from MacArthur's key fob for his apartment that I suspect showed every time he entered or left his home. They used this information to reconstruct Bruce's movements on the 26th. And that's not all. With the blood and DNA matching the two missing men, police obtained a warrant to search and swab Bruce's apartment and to clone his electronics. They couldn't take anything or do a really thorough search as they didn't want Bruce to know that they were onto him. They were doing all these searches covertly. And on these devices, they found over 100 photos of Andrew. Tragically, 18 of the photos were taken post-mortem. They even found deleted photos of other men that were taken post-mortem. And these photos were bad guys. I did not look any of them up. I doubt they're even published, thankfully. And I hope out of respect of the victims that they are never shown outside of a courtroom. But in the photos, some of the victims were posed with hats and a fur coat and cigars hanging out their mouth. And one victim had his eyes taped open in his post-mortem photo. And this just shows that Bruce had a complete disregard for human life, and just like his son, he is scum of the earth. After finding the postmortem photos, Bruce was put on 24-hour 
police surveillance. Officers were instructed to immediately arrest Bruce if he is ever found to be alone with anyone. On January 18th, police saw a young man enter Bruce's apartment. Fearing for this guy's life, police arrested MacArthur on the spot. And when they did, they found that the young man was already tied up on a bed otherwise unharmed. Later, it is revealed that this man, John, had been having an affair with Miss Arthur, whom he met online, and they would often do BDSM scenes together. So to me, it sounds like this man only had a matter of time before he went missing as well. Anyway, back to the police, who are now doing a more thorough search of Bruce's apartment. Now that they had him in custody, the search yielded evidence that allowed the police to charge Bruce with two counts of first-degree murder and and the presumed deaths of Andrew and Salim. There were no bodies, but Bruce had kept post-mortem photos as a trophy, proving that the men were deceased. Police were sure that they would get their conviction, not only because of the DNA evidence, but using Bruce's postmortem photographs, they were also sure they knew how Andrew and Celine died. The photos showed that the two men had been strangled. Despite feeling that they had enough for a conviction, police still wanted to find the bodies of the missing men. On the same day of Bruce's arrest, police got a search warrant to search five more properties that were associated with Bruce and his landscaping business. Using cadaver dogs, police searched a property in Leaside, Toronto, where they found the dogs were very interested in a large planter box, indicating that it may contain human remains. Police delivered the planter to the coroner, and on January 29th, Detective Sergeant Hank Insigna publicly announced that they have recovered the dismembered skeletal remains of at least three people in two out of the 12 planter boxes recovered from the Leaside property. It states, we do believe there are more victims. I have no idea how many more there are going to be. We're investigating some 30 properties. We believe there are more remains at some of these properties that we're working to recover. On February 8th, police announced that they found the remains of three more victims and planters recovered from the Leaside home. Through fingerprints, police was able to identify one of the victims as Andrew Kinsman. On March 5th, the police held a press conference announcing that they needed help identifying the seventh victim, and they shared a post-mortem photo of the victim that was taken by Bruce. I cannot find any solid proof that police ever announced the, ide- the identity of the man in the photo, but some speculate that it is a picture of Abdul Bazir Fazy. There are a total of eight known victims of Bruce MacArthur. And before I go over the victims more thoroughly, I just want you all to pay attention to the types of men that Bruce targeted because the types that he targeted, it just shows how he was able to get away with this for so long. And I'm going to go through these victims in order of their disappearances. Skandaraj Skanda Navaranam was 49 years old, and he was a Sri Lankan national who worked as a teaching assistant. It is hinted that Skanda's family did not know he was gay, and he had no family in Canada. Skanda was reported missing on September 10th or 11th, 2010, when his 
friends noticed that he didn't come home to care for his beloved new puppy. And just side note, the amount of beloved pets in this case is just making this even harder for me. Anyways, Skanda was last seen leaving Zippers, a bar in the village. It is believed that he may have worked for Bruce's landscaping business at one point before his disappearance. Abdul Bazir Faisi, also known as Bazir, was a married father of two daughters who was struggling with his sexuality. Unbeknownst to his family, Bazir was active in the gay community at the village, and he had known he was gay since growing up in Afghanistan, but was afraid to come out due to cultural stigma. He was last seen at a bathhouse in the village on December 28, 2010, and was reported missing by his family on the next day. I found this really sweet quote that an anonymous friend told CBC News. The last time I spoke to him, he was working overtime to make sure his kids get all the things that were on their wish list for Christmas. Majid Kahan, also known as Hamid, was a 58-year-old man who, like Bazir, also had a family and wife at home. He was reported missing on October 25, 2012 by his adult son after not being seen for about a week. Hamid was also closeted to his family due to his Muslim background. Hamid immigrated to Canada from Afghanistan in the 1980s, and he suffered from PTSD from the Soviet-Afghan war. Hamid's remains were not found in a planter, but was actually in a ravine adjacent to the Leaside property. Sarush Mahmoudi was a 50-year-old Iranian refugee and family man who was reported missing sometime in August 2015. He does not have clear ties to Gay Village at the time of his death, but he had a history of hanging out there before his marriage to his wife. Sarush's wife calls him her soulmate. Karushna Kumar Kanagarathnam came to Canada to seek asylum from his home country, Sri Lanka, in 2010. He actually came to Canada on the MV Sun Sea with 491 other undocumented refugees. As a result, he was in the process of being deported. So when he went missing in August 2015, everyone assumed that he was just hiding from Canadian authorities. And as a result, he was never officially reported missing. Like Sorush, it is unclear how often he visited the village or how much he was involved in the local gay community. 47-year-old Dean Lieselwick was also not reported missing. He was a mentally ill sex worker who sadly spent his life on the street in shelters. It is believed that he died on or around April 23rd, 2016. He is survived by his daughter, Emily Bourgeois, who remembered him as an artistic soul. Before his death, Dean was trying to better himself and his life. 44-year-old Salim Essen came to live in the village in Toronto from Turkey in 2013. He wanted to live in a country and in a community that was more accepting of the LGBTQIA plus community. Salim was struggling with addiction, but before his disappearance, he actually completed a counseling program, and he was just so close to getting his life back on track. A friend was beginning to worry about him because he suspected that Salim was in a unhealthy relationship. And as a result... Salim would stay with friends. Salim was reported missing on April 20, 2017 by a friend. And police 
falsely reported that Essen didn't have a fixed address and was often seen pulling a wheelchair. And this pulling a wheeled suitcase. And this paints a picture of a homeless man. But friends claim that this was not true. His friend Richard Hirup tells the Globe, Salim wasn't a transient. And he added that Salim would in fact stay with him from time to time. See, Salim came to Canada to live with a partner that he met online, but the relationship just wasn't working out. Salim was loved and cared for by his friends in Canada. And even now, when I try to look up more information about Salim, this misconception is still everywhere. The last known victim was 49-year-old Andrew Kinsman. Andrew's death is where Bruce made his biggest mistake. Many of the other confirmed victims did not have family or a long-standing presence in the village community, but Andrew Kinsman was well-known and loved by many. He was a building super, and for those who don't know, that's someone who was in charge of a tenant building. He's the guy you call when there's a leak or if you get locked out of your apartment, and so it was glaringly obvious when he went missing, and if his friends hadn't reported him missing in 72 hours of his disappearance, Bruce may still be out there today, destroying lives and families. And there's evidence that Andrew worked with Bruce's landscaping company, but the two have actually known each other for about a decade because both have been involved in the community for that long. And Andrew, that I... With very minimal research, I found a missing persons post posted on the subreddit r slash Toronto. And the comments are just filled with people who loved and known him and who was eager for his safe return. And I'm going to post these comments in the video, but one user writes, really sweet dude from my old hood. Hope he's okay. Another writes, hope he's found okay. I was chatting with him a few weeks back at the point. He's a very nice fellow. Someone commented on that. He's the loveliest of people. I hope he's found too. Another user writes, have known Andrew for years, even lived in the same building for a while back. Loveliest of men, an absolute staple of Cabbage Town. I'll be sure to get the word around. On February 8th, 2019, Bruce MacArthur was sentenced to life and he will be eligible for parole in 25 years. Right before the judge sentenced him, Bruce was given a chance to address the court, which he denied, saying, I've spoken with my counsel and I don't want to say anything. Bruce will be 91 before he is allowed to apply for parole. Bruce was 67 at the time of his sentence and is a type 2 diabetic. And because of this, the Toronto Sun reports he should leave prison in only one way, a pine box. And that's the case of Bruce MacArthur. And this whole case made me insanely mad. And I was literally grinding my teeth last night because of who Bruce targeted. He made a point to target refugees and immigrants, people who had limited resources in Canada who were new to the country and who were looking to find a better life, specifically a better life for members of the LGBTQIA plus community and only for them to be hunted and preyed on 
by a man from that community. It is just disappointing. It is disgusting. It is disturbing. And hence why I have a twisted tea in my hand because I am choosing war over this. This case is heartbreaking and I completely understand why so many of you guys suggested that I do this case and I've just had to save it for the finale because it is still ongoing. I didn't want to miss any new information that may have popped up from the time where I started researching all of my cases till now. But as of filming this, a lot of the information from the court and from the courtroom, everything like that, a lot of it has been kept hush-hush. So, and that may be because there is still a major possibility that there are more victims that have yet to be identified or or found. So until then, I'm sure they're just keeping a lot of the information quiet just to not interfere with the investigation. And also another note is that police are actually looking back further in Bruce's life because many serial killers begin in their 20s. They begin killing in their 20s and Bruce was in his 40s and the way that he disposed of the bodies were very experienced. Like it wasn't, like it was experienced. It was, it was very smart and they probably wouldn't have found them if he didn't happen to, to pick Andrew as his last victim. So because of that, they are tracking his life from when he used to work as a buyer for Eaton's department store because around that time, I believe that was the 80s, 70s, 80s, he would be traveling a lot. And so they're trying to see if they could retrace his steps to find any more victims and possibly connect him to any other unsolved cases from that time. So just keep your eyes open for an update. I will update this case if anything is found. Thank you for joining me today for the season one finale. My name is Sophia Talley and this is True Crime Init. For more information about my sources, for additional show notes, and photographs from today's episode, please visit my website, thedrunknitter.com slash true crime. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.